Let us now turn in God's Word to the uh, 17th chapter of the book of Acts, reading verses 16 through 34. And then our message tonight comes to verses 24 through 31. I want to say while you are turning to that portion of God's Word that... uh, I am sure I'm not alone that the older I get, the more clear this principle of the sanctity of human life becomes as we are made increasingly aware that we live in a culture of death. But I'm also aware this evening that I come at this subject with some self-consciousness, not for the first time, but I am aware that being a British citizen living in the United States now going on 20 years, I am commenting upon a country in which you were born, you were brought up, and of which you are citizens. And so I do want to say, in coming with an outsider's pair of eyes, although I don't feel an outsider, that anything I say tonight which bears upon politics, I do not as anything other than a friend of your country and somebody who is blessed to call this country home. And if anything I say tonight is uncertain to you and does not jive necessarily with what you believe, especially in terms of the application, then I would refer you to a book I wrote some years ago called Preaching and Politics, Engagement Without Compromise. And there you will find in that book that while I do not believe preachers should be apolitical, refusing to speak about politics, I do not believe either that preachers should be party political. I've argued in that book that we be biblically political. In other words, we expound the Scriptures on its own terms and let the chips fall where they may. And I would guess that most voters coming to worship tonight probably vote with the Republican Party, and some may vote with the Democratic Party. In other sectors of the Christian church, a majority may vote with the Democratic Party, and some may vote with the Republican Party. I want you to know that I do not have a vote. My simple aim is to speak forth the Word of God and to speak forth what I believe is the application of the Word of God. And so I would say tonight that if you go away fuming, and frankly, I've prayed a lot about this, that I would ask you not to let it rest upon our pastor not to let it rest upon our elders, although they have a responsibility to oversee the preaching of the Word, but let it rest upon what I have said, not what somebody else has not said. We live in days, as I'm sure you are aware, where there is great sensitivity to political issues. And one of my feelings is that the issues which we deal with tonight, which affect those who vote right as well as left, 
are critical issues, and we need the foundational principles of Scripture to lead us and to guide us, and not what we read in the media. So with that, let us turn to God's Word and let us read Acts 17, 16 to 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus on the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that we are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spread, spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Well, therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for on Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. The Lord bless this reading of his word. Let us pray. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all of the earth, our creator and sustainer of all things. And Father, it is to you that we come in this evening hour as we prepare to hear this word that you have brought through Dr. Trumper. We pray that you would give him the words to speak, that we would have the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and a heart that ever longs to be closer to you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
in whose name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, the title of our sermon tonight is Understanding the Sanctity of Human Life. I've already mentioned that we live amid a culture of death. There is, of course, a sense in which we always live amid a culture of death because death is part of our experience of life. But of course, when we speak about a culture of death, we are speaking in particular about unnatural death, death which has ended, which would actually have gone on to have spent more time upon earth. I'm thinking, of course, of issues such as suicide, assisted suicide, abortion, murder, euthanasia. And you can think perhaps of other evidences of unnatural death beside. But over against this culture of death is the biblical principle of the sanctity of human life. When we talk about the sanctity of human life, we're talking about the holiness of life, by which we do not mean that every life is holy. What we mean is that there is a sense in which every life is holy because it is created by a holy God. And because life is created by God, it ends on God's clock and not on ours. And yet as we come in the current climate to look at this subject, there are, I put it to you, three challenges in doing so. And the first challenge is an emotional challenge. There is such a thing as issue fatigue. Some of you may have come to worship tonight with this very fatigue. It's as if you know what the preacher is going to say about the sanctity of human life before he's even opened his mouth. And the temptation then is just to zone out what is said because you know what he's going to say before he even says it. He's going in your own thinking perhaps to give a verbal lashing to the person who performs the abortion or who has an abortion. He's going to give a verbal lashing to any politician who tries to promote euthanasia. And yet I put it to you that we can no more afford to have issue fatigue than could William Wilberforce when trying to outlaw slavery. The statistics have just come out from 2018. Some of you will have read them. 41.9 million babies aborted in 2018 worldwide. That's 23% of all pregnancies end in an abortion. And when you look at the Worldometer, a website which lists the populations of the countries of the world, to put it in perspective, that means that last year more infants were aborted than there are people in 198 out of 233 countries in the world. And so I put it to us then that we cannot afford to have issue fatigue with regard to the principle of the sanctity of human life. But then we come, secondly, to the political challenge, and that is the increasing evidence of selective outrage in our world. Brenda and I visited uh, Auschwitz a number of years ago. And as we walked around the grounds of Auschwitz, where an estimated one million people were killed, the thought occurred to me, how many of the tourists 
walking around Auschwitz would end life unnaturally in the womb or support the ending of life unnaturally in any of its outlets. And so the world will walk around a place like Auschwitz, ooh, ah, tut, tut, the Nazis, and have this cognizant disconnect between what they were doing in the 1940s and what is going on under our very noses today. And so we as the Christian church try to be a witness to what is going on in society, and we say, you cannot be selectively outraged. But this is where I need to be truthful with you and say that I am as burdened about the selective outrage of the church. All the time we are appealing to the governing authorities to defund Planned Parenthood. It is estimated that 40% of the abortions are occurring within the professing Christian church. And so you can imagine the situation of somebody sitting in the head office of Planned Parenthood, hearing the Christian church plead with the president to defund Planned Parenthood. And they are getting reports coming in from abortion clinics of young people turning up at abortion clinics with bumper stickers from Christian colleges. And you can imagine how much selective outrage the world has, and it's there, and this is where you may be fuming with me. When the Christian church makes such a lot about abortion, and yet when the latest massacres happened on the streets of the country, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. And my mind goes to a friend of mine in Scotland who grew up in a conservative reformed church, who would now profess to be an atheist. And he's becoming quite a well-known cartoonist. And it grieves my spirit when I see him write a cartoon against the Christian church for thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, every time there's a massacre in the country. And so I put it to us, dear brothers and sisters, if we are evaluating these issues in terms of a body count, we are approaching the issue party politically, we are not approaching the issue in terms of the biblical principle of the sanctity of human life. It matters when there are massacres. Oh, the body count for abortion may be up here, and the body count, even in a country like America, for deaths on the street, violent deaths on the street down here. But these are all people made in the image of God. And we will not persuade the nation about the sanctity of human life with regard to abortion when we say thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, when the latest massacre has happened. We need a level playing field whereby the church of Jesus Christ is outraged about unnatural death, however it happens, 
no matter the means. The third challenge, a theological challenge. We talk about unnatural death, but the Bible holds forth two instances, perhaps you can think of more, two instances where unnatural death is legitimate. And the first is with regard to capital punishment. And the principle that was given in the days of Noah, whoever sheds man's blood shall have his blood shed by man, is still abiding. And yet the Christian church has gone soft on that issue. Yes, we need to talk about safe verdicts. Yes, we need to talk about humane ways of operating the death penalty. But the death penalty still remains a biblical exception to the sanctity of human life. And the second exception is a just war. And it is for that reason then that we put pressure on our politicians to ensure that when they go to war and vote that young men go into harm's way, that they can guarantee that the war is just and the war is necessary. So there's a theological challenge. Well, against that backcloth, then, we come to Acts 17. I want to lay the stage, because I don't want us going away tonight, as is the temptation for me, and maybe the temptation for you, and say, oh, aren't I a good Charlie? I uphold the sanctity of life, and all those evil people out there don't. The sanctity of life is not, I put it to you, a party political issue. It should never have been that. It is a biblical principle that has a far wider ramification than we may think. And so we come to Acts 17 then, and we notice some of the important principles in this chapter as to how to respond to the culture of death. Notice, first of all, our mission. Our mission is the gospel. Paul here is in the midst of his second missionary journey. It started under a cloud. Remember the division between Paul and Barnabas as to whether to take John Mark on the second missionary journey. And yet something historic has happened in this second missionary journey. Paul has wandered all the way across the land of Turkey, and he's come to the coast He's tried to take the gospel to the north, but he's been precluded by the Holy Spirit. He's tried to take the gospel to the south. He's been precluded by the Holy Spirit. And literally, and Brenda and I have stood there, he has come to the coast, and he can't go any further. And at that point, he receives the Macedonian call to take the gospel over into Europe, and he begins in the northern province of Macedonia, and he makes his way down to Achaia. So that by the time we come into Acts 17, he's already been through Philippi, and now he comes to Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. I want to say that he's not there to preach a pro-life message. It would be wrong for Pastor Bob, and it would be wrong for me to turn this pulpit into a pro-life campaign stop. But nevertheless, the gospel that Paul preaches to the Athenians is one that is massively pro-life. 
the pro-life is not the message, but it is the application of the message. And so it is the gospel that is to the fore here in Acts 17. But then we notice in responding to the culture of death, our method. Paul is chased out of Thessalonica. He's taken then from verse 10 onwards to Berea. Those marvelous Bereans. Why are those so marvelous? Verse 10. Paul, Barnabas, Paul and Silas are sent away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. These Bereans were not malcontents, trying to trip Paul up, trying to show the fallacy of his reasoning about Jesus being the Messiah. They received his word eagerly. But nevertheless, they then took the word back to the Scriptures to see whether what Paul was teaching was true. And I put it to you, brothers and sisters, the, true must, the same must be true for us. Pastor Bob has, what, 40 minutes on a Sunday morning? 40 minutes Sunday night to shape your minds through the Word of God. He also has Bible studies and would recommend you attend at least one of them a week. But you go back to your home and you put on the TV. And depending upon your party political persuasion, that will determine which news outlet you put on. And there is this echo chamber out there whereby you are receiving, receiving, receiving the principles of the world. No matter the degree or not to which they are Christianized. But just because something is culturally Christian does not mean to say that they are biblically Christian. And so the importance of the Bereans is this, that we come back to the Scriptures when we hear something on the news and we say, is that really biblical? When I hear from a politician, well, you see, we're American, we're all the children of God. Well, is that what the Scriptures really teach? When I hear a political argument that comes near to the Scriptures and what is covered by the Scriptures, is that what the Scriptures teach? The Bereans show us our method. And then thirdly, we come to the message itself. Well, what is the message? God is the message. Paul has been pursued then from Thessalonica to Berea to Athens. He's accompanied now to Athens in the south of Greece. He awaits Silas and Timothy. And he's just wandering around the city of Athens. And he exudes so much of God. Notice what he exudes. He exudes the heart of God, verse 16. He has a fit when he sees the whole city go, given over to idolatry. The word for fit means paroxino. Uh, that's what it is. It's, it's a fit. It's the similar word used here as is used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures for God's attitude to idolatry. And so the attitude that Paul has to idolatry here is very godlike. We see not only the heart of God, the priority of God. Although he's very disturbed by what he sees in Athens, 
He doesn't go off, dart off to the left or off to the right. He sticks to the agenda of God. What is the agenda? To go to the Jews first, and he reasons that Jesus is the Messiah. And only after he's been to the synagogue does he then go to the marketplace following the generosity of God to say now that the gospel is not simply for God's ancient people, it is for Gentiles as well. And we see the grace of God. Those in the marketplace don't understand what Paul is bringing to them. They think he's speaking about foreign gods, but he's speaking about Jesus and the resurrection. And then we notice the wisdom of God. We don't read a people converted, but we read that Paul gains a hearing. And so he's taken to the Areopagus, and now he has the chance to give a logical and a reasoned explanation of the gospel to people who do not have the Scriptures, who do not know of Jesus Christ. And so what's his text going to be? He doesn't say, as he says to the Jews in an earlier chapter, Acts 13, as it says in the second psalm. The Jews won't know what the psalm is. They'll have no idea. And so he has to find another sermon text. So what does he say? As I walked by, I saw the statue to the unknown God. Him you do not know personally, I proclaim to you. And I'm sure you are aware of this as I am, that at the heart of the cultural conflict between the culture of death and the sanctity of human life is a battle over God, the battle over the existence of God, the battle over submission to God. Who is on the throne? Is God on the throne if He exists? Or am I on the throne with my personal rights? And with my life, my agenda, and what I'm going to do with it. And this is why I believe the Reformed faith is so attuned to outreach. Because it begins with God and it ends with God. It is so adapted to reaching the modern mindset. It comes at this culture war head on. And it speaks about God. And either men will bow before him, or they will hate us for mentioning him. Well, we come then to Paul's sermon. And there are three relevant observations. First of all, the foundations of the sanctity of human life, verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Foundational to the sanctity of human life is the doctrine of God. And basic to the doctrine of God is, in the first place, the existence of God. Nowhere in the Scriptures is there an attempt to prove the existence of God. God is everywhere presumed. And so you open up Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. You open up John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so presumptive are the Scriptures about the existence of God, that it is the fool who says, in his heart, not his head, in his heart, there is no God. 
And so Paul comes to these Athenians who are the intelligentsia of their day with all their different philosophies, the Stoics on the one hand who are the rationalists, the Epicureans who are the pleasure seekers on the other, and he says, the God. Well, why is this so important? Well, because man has the knowledge of God. Shortly later, Paul was going to write from Corinth to the church in Rome along these very lines. And in a sense, he unpacks in Romans 1, 18 to 20, what he's here saying by way of a summary. That man has the knowledge of God. The invisible attributes of God are clearly seen by the things that are made. But what has man done? Well, man has taken hold of this knowledge which is given to us from creation. God speaking all the time, night and day, in every place so that all can hear him, but we've taken hold of this knowledge and we are holding it down. We are suppressing it in unrighteousness. And so what Paul is doing here as he opens his address to the Athenians is tapping into the knowledge that these Athenians already have. And he is saying God is one. There is no God beside him and he is internally coherent. God is sovereign. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. God is infinite. He is without spatial limitation. He does not dwell in temples made by human hands. God is greater, says Paul, than anything that we can create. God is autonomous. He is not served by human hands. He is independent of man. Our mind goes back to Psalm 50. If I were hungry, would I tell you? And so the existence of God is one of the basic elements of the doctrine of God, but then there's also the works of God creation. God made the world and everything in it, and providence. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything in it. And so Paul is reversing the focus of the Athenians. The Athenians as idolaters, idol makers. There they are. They're creating one idol after another, and they are trying to capture the gods, including the unknown god. And Paul is saying, you've got it all wrong. He says, there is the God who creates, not man, the creator of the gods. And that is so very important for this theme of the sanctity of human life. Why? Because of what the apostle is trying to do. On the one hand, he is humbling man. He is saying, man thinks he is divine and sovereign. Yet everything he has comes from God, even his breath, his life. God is the one who provides what we call macro-providence, the great things of life. God is the one who provides what we call micro-providence, the tiny things of life. Man, even the intelligentsia of Athens, are utterly dependent upon God. He created them, he now provides for them. And this is the very thing which men and women in our own day don't want to hear. That God does not need our opinion. That God does not need us to create idols from our own hearts. He is the God who creates. He is the God who provides. He provides the big things. He provides the little things. And we are dependent upon Him. And so if we are going to see society recovered, what has got to happen? 
and there may be deaths, there may be persecutions before this happened. And that is the dethroning of man and the putting of God in the mind of man back on his throne. Now, Paul is not trying to humiliate the Athenians. There is a difference between humbling man and humiliating him, and so he speaks of the privileges of man. Man has considerable dignity. He is the crown of creation made uniquely in God's image. He made man. He made man. Now, this teaching then, as it pertains to the sanctity of human life, is not new to Paul. It goes, as I say, right back to the days of Noah. Go back to Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, because we are made in the image of God. And so I put it to you, brothers and sisters, then, that we need to work in our day towards reestablishing the foundations for the sanctity of human life, that God exists, and that we are dependent upon his works of creation and providence, and we can go on and talk about his works of redemption. But secondly then, the compulsions of the sanctity of human life, verses 26 and 28. Besides honoring God and safeguarding his works, we are compelled on two supplementary grounds to support the sanctity of human life. First of all, sociologically, in the first half of verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. It is then through the doctrine of creation, that we come to see that the entire human race is united in Adam, our first father. Paul's point is that the Athenians are not superior to other Greeks. You see, the Athenians were boasting that they were the only ones who had not migrated into Greece. And so that made them superior to other Greeks. And being Greeks, they were also superior to the barbarians. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. He says, the marvelous teaching of being made in the image of God is this, that no one here tonight is more important than anybody else. No one in the world tonight is more important than anybody else. I mentioned earlier the refugees in Kakuma in Kenya. They may feel less important than other people because they are fighting hand to mouth for food and for a future. But they are as much made in the image of God as I am made in the image of God, or you are made in the image of God. And so, what Paul says here to the Athenians speaks to the very heart of why we are compelled to uphold the value of human life, no matter whose life that is. Because we have one first parent, Adam our father. And in our humanity, we are united to him. So the doctrine of creation then is very pro-life. There's a level playing field. We all possess the image of God and are united to our first parents. The failure to understand that is what led to the suppression of the African-Americans. I remember studying in Edinburgh and a friend coming across from America, he only became a friend once he came. In tears, speaking to our theology class, 
about how he had been at a presbytery meeting in the South where there was a discussion going on over lunchtime as to whether African Americans had souls. That is a complete denial of the Scriptures. Think also of what has happened in Europe in the 20th century with the Aryans trying to exterminate the Jews. And the sad history that Hitler got some of his views, as he says in Mein Kampf, from America. This is what he said to one of the Nazis. I have studied with great interest the laws of several American states concerning prevention of reproduction by people whose progeny would, in all probability, be of no value or be injurious to the racial stock. So if we have come to church tonight thinking, we've heard this all before, we are living in days, we are at a crossroads, where either we stop taking for granted this biblical teaching, or we start learning this biblical teaching because we've not appropriated it previously. This affects our outreach. Do we believe that everybody outside the church is made in the image of God? And are equally in the image of God as we are in the image of God by nature? How do we value the human person? Is it according to cultural standpoints? Or is it according to Scripture? And so, we are compelled as the Lord's people, sociologically, that no matter our race, no matter our economic strata, no matter our color, we have a bond in Adam which is only heightened by those who are in Christ. And then spiritually, we are compelled. Defending life is not an end in itself. Notice the way Paul speaks of it here, verses 26, the second half, verse 26 through 28. We defend physical life, yes, because man is made in the image of God. But there's something else. It is this, that so long as a man or a woman, a boy or a girl are breathing, they have an opportunity to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Paul says of all that God has given us, first of all, he's given man an opportunity to know the gospel, verse 26, and he's made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why was that so significant? Well, you see, he's saying to the Athenians, you don't know just how strategic it is that you live where you are and when you do so. Why? Because Christ has come. The Holy Spirit has been given. The church has gone out from Jerusalem preaching a Christ who is resurrected. And in the providence of God, you are where you are, when you are, so that you can hear the gospel. And this is what Pastor Bob was speaking of at the end of his sermon this morning. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, do you not know this? That this sovereign Lord of heaven and earth has placed you when you live and where you live. He has placed you in the path of the gospel just as he placed the Athenians in the path of the gospel. And so I'm not here tonight to say, listen, you become a Christian when you sign the dotted card and say, I am pro-life. No, says Paul. 
We are pro-life not only because it stops people from being exterminated. We are pro-life because the more they breathe, the more they live, the more they have their being in God, the greater the chance they have of coming to the foot of the cross and of believing upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God has given man an opportunity to know the gospel. God has given man a purpose. Verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. And so let me say to you tonight, you may be saying, well, okay, I'm alive. I get it. I'm a teenager, though. I don't know what my life's about. I'm drifting. This is your great purpose in life, to seek the God who has brought you into being, knowing that he is not far from any one of you. This is why we celebrated Anita's profession of faith this morning. That this God who is so transcended, high and lifted up, is nevertheless the God who fills heaven but also fills earth. And so that means that he is present in every millimeter of this room tonight by his Spirit. And so if you are outside of Christ and are yet to come to a relationship with God, and you say, well, God seems so far away, take this as your encouragement. He is not far from you, if you will but seek him. And if you're outside of Christ, this is the number one purpose for which you are still alive. God has given man understanding. Second half of verse 27, verse 28. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. Paul is quoting the poet Epimenides of Crete from the 6th century B.C to demonstrate that even unbelievers know that life comes from God and that he would have them use it to seek him. And then God has given us a calling, second half of verse 28, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now he quotes Aratus from the third century BC. John Calvin says that in Adam we broke loose from our heavenly father, but in Christ we can come back into relationship with him. And so the spiritual view of life is generally missing today. When you talk about the sanctity of human life, it's not simply, as the world would have us believe, that if we don't abort the unborn, and if we don't put to death those who are elderly and weak, then the world's going to be overrun. And the world would have us debate the issue on that point. But the real issue that we are pro-life is so that men and women, boys and girls, can come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, can come back into a relationship with God. They know that God exists, but they don't know God as Father. But Paul is saying to these Athenians, in Adam we broke loose from our common father, but in Christ we can come to know him, not now in some propositional way, some abstract way, but we can come to know him as our heavenly father. And so the unborn are killed without thought for how they could seek and glorify God. And the debate on euthanasia tries to gather pace without any mention of the reality of heaven and hell. 
well, you see, we want to put somebody who's dying out of their misery. It doesn't matter whether they know Christ or not. It doesn't matter whether a local minister faithful to the gospel can come to this person, share the gospel with them before they die their natural death. No, you see, we don't want them thinking about these things. We want to sedate them. We don't want them thinking about anything negative. And so countless numbers drift off into eternity under medical sedation. Now, I'm not opposed to sedation to a point, but you know what I'm saying. That if you take out of healthcare any concept of heaven and hell, healthcare becomes very different than it would otherwise. And so thirdly then, time is gone, but I want to speak about the rejections of life. Putting it to you tonight, you probably think, well, how can anybody reject the sanctity of human life in, in favor of this culture of death? Why, why are they even making this decision? And Paul gives us three reasons here. And the first is idolatry, verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like silver or gold, or stone or silver, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Every age creates idols. God has put eternity into the hearts of man, but man is an idol maker. And so if we are not filling our hearts with God, we fill them with the gods of our own. And of this idolatry, Paul says it's inexcusable because we are God's offspring. And then he says it's futile because we can never make gods that adequately represent man. And so the Athenians' best creations could not honor God. God requires that we worship and we love Him according to what He has revealed. He cannot be replicated by an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And so I put it to you tonight that the culture of death is the price we are paying for our idolatry of personal liberty and rights. It is right that we pursue peace, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But like any good blessing, it can tip over into idolatry. And when we start idolizing liberty and rights, we are no better than the Athenians. The liberty that God has designed for us is to serve Him to love on Him, to worship Him, to serve our fellow man. It is not a liberty whereby I put my rights before this person's rights. And we as Christians of all people have the calling and the charge of God to demonstrate to a watching world what it is to die to self in the exercise of rights so that other people may live, so that other people may seek God, so that other people may be in Christ. Second reason, verse 30, impenitence. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. The excuses have gone. Christ has come. God overlooked sin beforehand. But now that Christ has come and been set forth by God as a propitiation through His shed blood, the excuses for idolatry are gone. 
So we are at a crossroads in America today, and not only America, the United Kingdom, the Western world, and it's this. You're wondering how the debate is going to go about pro-life. You're wondering how the debate is going to go about this issue and that issue, suicide, assisted suicide, euthanasia, the lot. It really boils down to one word, repentance. And that question does not, first of all, come to the world. It comes to the church. Judgment first begins at the house of God, we're told. Will the church in America, will the church in the United Kingdom be the chief repenters who show the world what it is to die to self in the exercise of rights in order that men and women can live and the gospel can be proclaimed. Thirdly, indifference, verse 31. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul forewarns that whether the church is revived or society is awakened or not, there is a coming a day when we'll be held to account for how we have valued the Lord Jesus Christ and in connection with him, the value of life. Nothing will do more to promote the sanctity of human life in our day than the restoration of the fear of God. I'm not talking about a slavish fear born out of legalism. I'm talking about a reverential awe for God. This is what happens when God revives his church. There is a reinstitution of the fear of God. This is what happens when God awakens society. People who are indifferent to sin suddenly are alerted to the fact that God exists, that he's going to hold us to account, and he's going to do so by that man whom he has appointed, the one who was crucified at the cross, an unnatural death, in order that we might know life and spiritual life in particular. Well, let me close with these two words. Thank you for your patience. A word to the lost. If you don't know God, you know about Him, but if you don't know God personally, that's what you are. You are lost. And it is because of your personal sin that God feels so distant from you, so abstract from you, so far away from you. And yet the beauty is this, and this was influential when I came to faith, the dawning upon me, God is not far from me. Oh, he feels a world away from me because I am sinful and he is holy. But this God who is so transcendent is also at hand. And many can testify tonight that there was a time when they sought God and he kept his promise that everybody who does seek him in sincerity and truth will come to know him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I put it to you tonight. To go home. To get alone with God. He's as much in your bedroom as he is in this room tonight. And claim these words. That God is not far from any one of us. 
if, if we will but feel after him. It's a picture of somebody groping around in the dark. And perhaps you've tried this, and perhaps you've tried that, perhaps you've tried the other thing, but the promise of the Word of God remains sure. If you feel after Him, you will find Him, because the reality is this, He is looking for you. And then you will know that the sanctity of human life is not simply about your ticker ticking. It's about finding a relationship with God. It's about living out to the purpose that God has given you to glorify Him by enjoying Him forever. It's finding a purpose for your life which the world knows nothing of. That you can be a participant in spreading the fame of Jesus Christ. And then finally, a word to the found. To come back to where I began. We need to understand the difference between biblical Christianity and cultural Christianity. Biblical Christianity comes to you without inverted commas. Cultural Christianity comes to you with inverted commas. It's not the real deal. And you will rarely hear the real deal on the newsreel at night. And we need to be a people who are taking hold of the Bible no matter our political preferences, no matter our news outlet, and taking over the Bible, taking up the Bible and saying, is this according to the Word of God? We do not have a remit to be party political, although we may be. But we certainly have a remit from Scripture to uphold the sanctity of human life. And if we come to that point of upholding it on the basis of Scripture, two things will be true of us. We will know the truth and be able to articulate the truth. But we will also have grace for those who have failed in this area of life. I know somebody very dear to me. who was pregnant out of wedlock. She knew the healthcare system. Her boss said to her, you pay this amount of money and nobody need ever know you've had an abortion. I praise God that she knew that all the pain she would put her family through, all the shame that she would feel, it did not justify ending a life. Her daughter has become a Christian. Her daughter is finished training herself as a medical doctor, has a great interest in missions. But what I'm saying to us as a church family, I'm saying to me, we all blow it at some point. We all have chapters in our lives which we would not want read aloud. 
So if we are biblical Christians, yes, we want to be standing tall on the truth. But we also need to be a community that embraces those who have blown it because we have blown it. We follow a Christ who was full of truth, but also full of grace. And nothing is more needed in our culture right now than Christians who know the truth but are winsome in grace. May God make us those people. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We recognize that we do not understand it all, but we get the main gist of it. And we pray, Father, that you would follow your word with your blessing and bless it both to the lost and to the found. And may we go into this week being biblical Christians, full of your truth, but also full of your grace. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.